Hello, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. In the current climate of fierce debates on human rights, social responsibility, politics and faith, it is all too easy to focus on what divides us rather than what unites us. In this series, we look at this year's theme, Tatvam Asi, I am you, you are me, and through that lens, explore how art and compassion can and do transform the world. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Thank you for that lovely, warm introduction. And you can see what, what proud festival guests we are, proudly supporting our sponsor, Prost Beer. Very good. Good beer for good people. And bad hombres, yes. <laughs> so I'm surrounded by good people, and you've probably met most of them already at the festival, but I'm going to introduce them again anyway. So here on my left is Juan Pablo Villalobos, uh, who, of course, is a Mexican writer resident in Spain for the past two decades. Juan Pablo is the author of Down the Rabbit Hole, Quesadilla, and I'll Sell You a Dog, amongst other things. But these three are available in English, and I highly recommend them to you. And his novels have been translated into 15 languages. Now, on my left, right next to me, is Arnold Zabel, who's an award-winning Australian writer, storyteller, educator and human rights advocate, particularly in the area of migrant education. And his writings focus primarily on migrant experience. His books are numerous, too numerous to list here. Every one of them breaks my heart. Every one of them is a jewel. So thank you, Arnold, for joining in on this panel. To my right is the lovely Jill Dawson. And Jill comes to us from the UK and has just published her ninth novel, which is The Crime Writer, about the novelist Patricia Highsmith. And this has been optioned for film and shortlisted for the East Anglian Fiction Award. Uh, she's much awarded, actually, and her novels, which I have particularly enjoyed, include Fred and Edie, which is based on a real 1920s murder case, and The Great Lover, which is about the great poet Rupert Brooke. Okay, and here, last but not least, is E. Rokajat Asura, who is an Indonesian writer, of course, and a prolific author of historical novels. We're lucky that an extract of one of his works has been published this year in the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival anthology. So those, those of us who do not master Bahasa Indonesia can at least enjoy some of his work. So thank you. Um, he lives in West Java. And Jackie, I know nothing about you except here you are. Jackie is going to translate for Rokajata Sura and hopefully interpret my stumbling questions to him and also help when Rokajata Sura reads some of his work. So here we all are and we're about to talk about The Past is Present. 
Now, you couldn't get four more different writers, I think. And this is the kind of thing that makes a poor blushing chair want to rush for the nearest vat of whiskey and probably fall face down into it. But then I saw who the writers were and thought, ah, it's going to be wonderful. It's a piece of cake. So let's just talk about this, um, this premise that... Um, Writing about history can actually help you learn from history's mistakes and hopefully avoid repeating them. Um, now, well, I'll go to each of you about this and say, you know, what, what do you think about this? Because I think this is pretty much a, a flawed premise. Um, I know that Stephen Hawking said... We spend a great deal of time studying history, which, let's face it, is mostly the history of stupidity. And I think when people in the future look back on current days, that's probably going to be what they're saying. This is a time of great stupidity. Jill, what do you think about this? Is this... <laughs> I knew you'd come to me. <laughs> Jill has just taught a three-hour workshop this morning, so I thought I'd give you the hard question Thank first. Thank you, Jenny. And combined okay. with the beer, you can imagine, my brain was slightly... Well, I actually heard the quote as being the famous... It's Faulkner, isn't it? The past isn't dead. It isn't even past. That, that's kind of how I thought of this. Um, the idea that the past isn't past, I think, accords with my way of approaching things. So the past is very present in my writing and I have just taught a workshop about um, research for novelists who might want to set novels in the past and talking about how do you connect with something that's happening now to find the sort of human route to something that happened then. So if I just give one small example, and I know this is a kind of avoidance technique, I'm not directly answering the question, but you know, we have to bend it to our, uh, to our own concerns. I was saying that one of my novels is set just after the French Revolution, and I was doing a lot of research in museums, and I discovered that one of the things that most connected with me was that when the Bastille, the prison, fell, people kept pieces of rubble. They, they kept them. So this museum had the rubble as souvenirs. And I said, well, that feels to me exactly like what people did at the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yes. Or any great yeah. similar moments where the people feel, I, I was there. And so actually seeing that little piece of rubble was my way into that topic. Because I don't think books and documents and archives and musty rooms necessarily connect a novelist to the past. So that, that's the way I've been approaching it. <laughs> that's, that's interesting, actually, because uh, a great friend of mine in Byron was involved in the Walk of the Living uh, some years ago and came back from that with a piece of stone from Auschwitz yes. and gave that to me. And it lives in a little velvet pouch. Mm in a drawer, and that to me is one of the most powerful pieces of history that I can have and hold and reminds me of what must never happen again. So, yeah. That's interesting because um, I, when I, I actually went to Auschwitz and I described this scene in, in Jules and Nash's, one of my books, <clears throat> and I actually, as I was leaving, I, you couldn't script this, I, I found a ring, right? Someone had dropped a ring and it had a black stone in it. So I, I took this ring, you know, and I, I, I said, well, this is going to be my uh, whatever it's going to be. 
And as I walked out, I thought, I don't want, I don't want this ring. This ring's going to curse me. So I just put it on a, I actually hung it on a bit of barbed wire. Mm. And I walked out and I said, oh, oh, I just don't want to look back. I don't want to yeah. go back to this place. So really, I, yeah, I didn't want a memento no, at all. It depends on the context, for yes. sure, doesn't it? Whether we want to take it with us or whether it's enough. But still, I reckon imaginatively, you got something from it, which would be my sort of, you know, position about things and how they influence novelists. Oh, look, I agree. I mean, and even that in itself is a story connected mm. to an object that I found there that has a lot of meaning, which I translated into story. I mean, for, for writers, it's about translating it into yes. story in yes. many ways. Um, but you're right. I mean, to have something tactile from a particular time uh, uh, is, is quite extraordinary. You know, you, you, you're, you're touching the stuff of something that existed a long yeah. time ago. Um, but I think in Australia, we have a great historian called Inga, Inga Clendenen. And she just passed away a month ago. And she, um, she wrote glorious history, but she, she always wrote from, the, wrote from documents that existed at the time. Yeah. She always wrote from mm -hmm. the diaries and the journals or whatever that were kept at the time. And she felt that kept her faithful because she felt that so much of what we write about the past is us projecting onto the past um, and rather than really, really entering into the times. And she wrote about many different pasts. I mean, she wrote about the Aztecs and about the brutality of those times. And she entered into those times through all kinds of documents and all kinds of uh, artefacts. And uh, yeah, I think that um, she, she, yeah, I, I agree with her. You have to be very, very careful. You're not imposing what we think about the past on the past. Can I ask you, Rokajata Sura, you write historical fiction, I mean, that is your genre, that is what you write, really. Why? Why? Is, there, is it because it's a, a series of great stories, that's where you find great stories? Or is it because you want to teach something about the past? What is your motivation for historical fiction? Thank you. It's on. Oke, ada dua hal kenapa sejarah penting untuk diceritakan. There's two things that I'd like to say. Pertama, bahwa di dalam sejarah masa lalu terdapat nilai-nilai penting kehidupan. In history, there are critical elements that we really shouldn't be forgetting. Yeah. Yeah. It's extremely important for the current generation. Kemudian, alasan yang kedua, kenapa saya memilih bentuk fiksi, menceritakan sejarah dalam bentuk fiksi, karena fiksi memberi ruang yang lebih luas untuk menyampaikan perasaan, pikiran-pikiran, kecemasan tentang seorang tokoh sehingga Wait. the choosing um, why do we choose historical fiction as opposed to pure history and it's because it provides a much larger and wider space for us to discuss feeling and emotion 
and uh, other aspects of life that that make up the contents of history. Akan lebih gampang masuk ke pembaca. Itu yang lebih penting. And makes it much easier to read. Yeah. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Juan Pablo, could you talk to us please about the historical context of, well maybe I'll Sell You a Dog is, is the novel that immediately springs to mind. I mean, yeah, that's, that's probably the one that has the most historical yes, setting. Um, yes, I'll Sell You a Dog is in some way a tricky historical novel. Yeah. And, uh, and also Quesadillas. Quesadillas is set back in the 80s in Mexico, a very interesting era in, the re in our recent history because I think that it was when our political destiny, I mean, for at least the next maybe 40, 50 years was uh, decided. And, uh, and that's, but, but I, I must say that in both cases, Quesadillas and I Will Sell You a Dog, rather than historical uh, facts, rather than inspired by historical facts, were inspired by autobiographical facts. Uh, Quesadillas is narrated by a teenage boy for 15 years back in 88. I was born in 73. This is a coincidence that yeah, like, uh, <laughs> the narrator is the same age as I was at the, at the time. And, uh, and the story is set in a small village in, in the state of Jalisco, in a small village called Lagos de Moreno, which coincidentally to it's my hometown. And, uh, and some of the facts, the political facts that happened in the, in the, in the novel actually, actually happened. And in the case of I Will Sell You a Dog, it's the story of a forgotten painter called Manuel Gonzalez Serrano, who died in 1960. Uh, he was a surrealist painter. Even I don't like the, the adjective surrealist because if you, when you say surrealism, it seems like you can say every, you can put anything in there when you say surrealism. And uh, as his paintings are similar to Giorgio de Chirico, for example, and in some ways also are similar. The self-portraits self are similar to Frida, Frida Kahlo's, for example, so it's, it's easy to say he's a surrealist painter. But he used to, he, I was very interested in telling his story because he was the granduncle of my best friend when I was a kid. And he was born, uh, Manuel Gonzalez Serrano was born in the same village as I do. So this autobiographical fact was the inspiration to, made it, to make a, a small research, because I don't research a lot, I must say, I'm lazy. <laughs> and, uh, and was the inspiration to write this novel about how we construct our historical memory and how do we construct our political memory. It is about how we decide to forget some figures, some persons, some facts in order to create a fiction called official history. Yes. And I, I stop here because that is, I, I said something very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> is that it's all downhill from here? <laughs> yeah. I love that. Quick volume. <laughs> That's 
That's wonderful. I love the fact that you said, um, I mean, your life was the research really for, for that novel. And I, I'm interested when you say that you didn't do much research. Jill, what about you? Because I know you've just taught that workshop on research. Well, yeah. uh, by the way, I just love that comment. So often writers think that, but I've never heard anybody yes. actually say that. <laughs> so, um, so my workshop, for those who don't know about research for novelists, I think was a little surprising. As I just mentioned, yes, I look at original documents. I want to know about letters and diaries. But I'm often telling stories of people who didn't leave evidence or didn't write our histories, weren't always um, able to read and write. That's quite often a topic of mm. mine. One's about an autistic boy who couldn't speak, in fact. So my research is often an immersive activity that's quite different. And if I give you an example for Highsmith, <laughs> you'll get the idea, I'm sure, which is one of the things that's known about Patricia Highsmith is she loved snails, and she kept snails for pets. Mm. And when I talk about her, people are always asking me about the snails. They're usually horrified. There's an anecdote that she took a head of lettuce with snails on it to a book party to accompany her in her handbag. So, yeah, this is presenting Patricia Highsmith as an absolute weirdo, all right, really, briefly. So when I'm working on this novel, I keep some snails. My daughter and I pick snails out the garden. We put them in a tank. We begin watching them. Snails are fascinating. I can tell you lots of things about snails now. And one simple thing which Highsmith loved is their mating ritual lasts for 12 hours. It's like a rapturous kiss. And also, they reproduce so frequently that before you know it, you have hundreds of snails. So the well, anecdote... That I didn't know. I love to hear that. Exactly. <laughs> about Highsmith having hundreds of snails seems less strange once you start keeping snails yourself. Yes. So my research is often immersive activity that allows me to access something about the character, the place, the person. I learned a lot about snails. I have a great respect for her interest in snails. After all, Darwin be began with his interest in earthworms, and no one's laughing now. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I don't think I could have got that without the actual experience, and that's the one I'm interested in, if I can possibly achieve it somehow. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> what about you? How, how important is your research, and how intense is that? How do you conduct it? Research, bagi saya sebagai pijakan biasanya saya melakukan riset pustaka usually I, used, I do library research first mm. seperti untuk buku ini ini tokohnya tentang eh, bagaimana perjalanan Jenderal Sudirman so this is a story of, of General Sudirman melakukan eh, gerilya sepa, sepanjang seribu kilometer and how he carried out guerrilla warfare over a distance of an, or an area of a thousand kilometers. Dari Jogja sampai Kediri. From Jogja in central Java to Kediri. Dalam keadaan sebelah paru-parunya tidak berfungsi. Where a portion of his, under extreme physical uh, limitations, only half of his lungs were working. Ketika saya riset kepustakaan, tidak mendapatkan detail karakter. When he did his library research, he found nothing on the nature of the man's character. Tetapi ketika saya terjun ke lapangan, but when he went to the field, mencoba 
tap napak tilas atau mengikuti jalur itu, jalur yang dilakukan Sudirman, saya menemukan banyak fakta. He found lots of facts. Masyarakat di jalur yang dilewati oleh gerilya itu the that lived along that route, ternyata menyimpan kenangan yang diceritakan secara turun-temurun. Dari situ saya bisa menemukan karakter bahwa Sudirman itu seorang yang teguh hati. So he was able to find out uh, uh, um, lots of information about his character seorang, and what was in his heart. Seorang yang taat beribadah sehingga keyakinannya menambah semangat yang mengabaikan bahwa dia sedang sakit. So he was able to generate such enthusiasm that he could in Uh, completely ignore his illness. Jadi ketika saya meriset kepustakaan itu hanya dijadikan sebagai alur besarnya. So Re- from the library research mm-hmm. he says I just got the main threads. Perjalanan dari A sampai Z-nya. Yeah. Sementara fiksinya itu lebih banyak ditemukan di lapangan. And much of the much of the texture of the story actually came from his field research along the trail. Sebuah fiksi tentu seperti saya katakan tadi melibatkan pikiran-pikiran, perasaan, keinginan, dan itu tidak tidak saya peroleh dalam referensi di kepustakaan. He says much of his story or most of his story comes uh, from the thought and the feeling. And the approach, and he says, none of that you can get in. He could get in the in the library research. Absolutely, that makes perfect sense. Yes, Arnold, with with you, I mean, you you're largely writing other people's stories. So, I mean, how how do you choose the stories to tell? How do you decide which story? Well, going on this issue of research, it's very interesting. The um, when you brought up about. Uh, You know, raising snails to, to do research. In one of my novels, uh, set on the island of Ithaca, called Sea of Many Returns, uh, and once again, uh, there's an autobiographical element there, and that is that um, my wife's family comes from that island, and we'd go there every uh, few years and spend three or four months living in the village, in the very house where her father was born. We slept in the very bed where not only was he born, but woke up one morning when he was 10 years old and found his mother dead beside him. Oh you know, he used goodness. to sleep with his mum. And just living there and being there, well, you don't call it research, you call it, I guess, just being there. Yeah. But I remember one, one, uh, uh, one, in one visit, I went through the olive picking season. So I spent three months where at 6am they'd come pick me up, take me up to the mountains. We always began by drinking a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> so picking the olives was a wonderful experience. But um, going through... Going through that uh, season of olive picking was fundamental for, for me to understand why people left this beautiful island. The island is gorgeous. I mean, you, you just want to, you want to live there because of its beauty and the way of life. But the, the harshness of the rocky earth, you know, like getting up, spending hour every day, hours every day, you know, your calves would be so worn out by evening and the thighs would be sore and that physicality, experiencing the physicality of it, I was, I was able to understand what a previous generation went through uh, and why they took the opportunity, even though they loved the place so much, 
And even though they suffered from nostalgia, you know, that pain of longing to return, when they left, they left to find um, other places. But look, uh, I, I, the other thing I recognise is follow the story, right? Yeah. In, in, my yeah. la- in my latest book, The Fighter, I, I literally follow the main character, uh, Henry Nissen, who almost became a world champion boxer, who grew up in the same neighbourhood as me, 10 minutes walk away. So once again, you write about what you know. And I knew those streets and I knew uh, the neighbourhood intimately. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I literally followed... He, a lot of the story is set in the present as well as the past intruding into the present. And he now works on the docks uh, at the age of 67. And uh, he drives a yellow Hyundai. And I, for, the, for about 18 months, I just followed this guy in the yellow Hyundai and he took me to all the places that meant, meant a lot to him. And I just witnessed who he was through being on his trail. So I, so I think there's all kinds of ways, all kinds of things you do to, to, to try to, to get to the heart of it and to be able to recreate the story, uh, a text, to tell a textured story, a story that's uh, authentic. I wanted to ask you if you would read a bit now, please. Yes. Um, and I think you're, you're going to read from I Will Sell You a Dog? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I will read a, an excerpt from I Will Sell You a Dog. And uh, maybe I will need to stop in some points to explain something. I don't know. Because yeah. Yeah. there are some, re- some political references and historical references that maybe, maybe uh, would be obscure for, for the audience. Uh, this passage is about um, some of our heroes of the revolution. We ha- we ha- in Mexico, we had a revolution in 1910, between 1910 to 1921. And, uh, and this revolution established the political system we, we have until now, with a political party called PRI, Revolutionary National Party uh, that ruled the country between 28 and 2000. Then we have two two governments from the right, from the conservatives, and then we again we have the PRI again. So this is a, a book that as Casadillas. This is a book that that. Um, reflects a lot on how we build this political system. And here, uh, th- in this excerpt, I will, I will read, it's about two characters, the main character called Theo. It's called Theo, in it's like Theodor Adorno, the German philosopher. And, uh, and Juliet, who is, the, who is a friend of, her, of him. <coughs> We sipped our, our beer, and by the second glass, without fail, it was Francisco y Madero's turn. Always Madero. The nation's fate had gone downhill because of Madero. Things would have been very different, the greengrocer said, if Flores Magón had led the revolution instead. You know what we should do, she asked, not waiting for me to answer. What we should do? is put a few bullets into Madero. They did that already, I remind her. Well, let's do it again then. Do you know where he's buried? 
We made plans to go and desecrate Madero's tomb in the monument to the revolution. It was close by, three metro stops away. Along with Madero were buried Pancho Villa and Carranza, Plutarco Elias Calles and Lázaro Cárdenas, all of them sworn enemies. The only thing they had in common was that they all had that the all day the only thing they had in common was that they all had mustaches. <laughs> the greengrocer shouted, "That's what dialects! That's what dialectics for! Building monuments." Madero had been killed exactly 100 years ago, in February 1913. But in the greengrocer's head, it was as if it had happened yesterday. She lived in a time when all the misfortunes of the nation, from the murder of Zapata to the electoral fraud committed against López Obrador, happened simultaneously, or were placed right up close to each other like a series of rocks encircling the planet and then heading out into space, all the way to Pluto. Thank you. The most extraordinary thing about your writing, as we said in the, the session that we had together on Thursday, is the injection of humour into the bleakest and blackest of scenarios. I mean, you deal with, with poverty, with loneliness, with violence, with drugs, with everything that, that could possibly be black and negative in the world. But it's hilarious. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean... Why? But I didn't mean to. <laughs> Actually, uh, in all of my books, I am trying to explore the limits of humor. Yeah. This is my work, I think. Uh, I'm trying to deal with the politically or not correct. And, um, and in, in the case of I Will Sell You a Dog, I try to construct an alternative version of the history of, of the past 80 years in Mexico and also of our artistic history because actually the, the novel is about this forgotten painter who was rescued like 10 years ago after 50 years in the shadows and, uh, and suddenly uh, the critics started to talk about him, like saying, oh, there was this guy who is a genius. And then it started to create a new uh, discourse, a new speech to legitimate this painter yeah. and to put this painter in, in, into the Mexican history. But actually what is interesting is that if you don't create this discourse, this, this speech, if you don't create a fiction to understand the work of this painter, then you have to put it in some, you know, like a drawer yes. to hit in a drawer because you don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to create a, a fiction and you need to, uh, to be, to, that this fiction to be coherent. So that's why I think that novels can explain in a different way our history and they can uh, even influence the way we see history. Uh, 
even in the case like writers like me that we don't research a lot and that we literally we go more on the way of fiction than in history we just take some facts and play with those facts and even in that cases I think that we can be able to explain different things from our history through fiction so really through fiction you make the the intangible tangible in a way and the inexplicable at least understandable I guess yeah yeah okay Yes, and actually it's because we can talk what, uh, what he was saying and uh, we, we can talk about different things like feelings, you know, yeah. history it's, it's difficult history, historians to talk about feelings Yes. and novelists, we can do that Yeah, yeah. Arnold, I, I absolutely loved The Fighter, I thought that was an extraordinary book and I so recognised a lot of the geography of that and a lot of the the historical references that you made too. Would you grace us with a, a small reading from the fighter? Well, I thought I'd, uh, I just thought now this is the passage I'd like to read um, because this is a minor character um, and uh, he was um, the father, well, there was a father-son working-class Australians living in the neighbourhood where the, uh, the boxer grew up or the legendary Nissan twins because actually they were identical twins who both became boxers, uh, and um, and they rose very high, uh, and and they took the boxing because they were so small and so skinny. They were always getting belted up, and felt like losers to use their term. Uh, and then they discovered this extraordinary couple, a former middle-aged, uh, sorry, former middleweight champion of Australia, just retired, Peter Reed, and his father, old Mick. Uh, they had a backyard gym and they took these boys on. So I thought that I'd read this passage about Mick, the, old, the, the father. Uh, and the reason I want to read about it is because I love the minor characters too. And I think that um, uh, y you can do a lot with minor characters. Uh, and um, and, and I, was, I, was, I was going to give a talk, I gave a talk about this book in a, a Melbourne um, uh, regional area of Geelong, the city of Geelong, and um, a guy came up to me before I was about to talk and he said, you know, I knew old Mick and old Mick was a dancer. So, so I said to him, I've got something for you. So when I stood up, I read this passage. Old Mick was a dancer. He never remarried, but there was always a lady friend to escort to a ballroom. He knew them all. The Lonely Hearts Club, the Trocadero, the Ziegfeld Palais, and the Victoria Racing Institute above Flinders Street Station. He loved making an entrance. The old man had style. He kept himself lean in his posture upright. In his 60s, he retained his sharp angular features, a rugged sculpted face, and an ample head of hair combed back in a cresting wave, as it had been since he was a teenager. And he dressed grand. He owned seven suits. He had sought out reputable tailors to make, the up, make, make them up for him. Smart modish jackets with three and a half inch lapels, no skimping. The continental look, custom made for ease of movement. He took time deciding which suit was right for each particular occasion. Tonight he goes for the white tuxedo with a black tie, a white shirt and silver cufflinks. His shoes are perfectly polished. His hair is slicked back with Californian poppy. He loves the fit of the trousers. He runs his hands over the fine wool. He appreciates what good tailoring can provide. 
the feel of the jacket slipping on effortlessly. Just one slight shrug of the shoulders and it sits perfectly. In dancing, he is as methodical as he is in all things athletic. He took it up in earnest in his 60s. He had lessons. He was a natural, but he knew the value of technique and of expert training. He didn't dance the pride of Erin or the circular waltz. They're too effeminate for his liking. He loves slow foxtrots, the quickstep, cha-chas, tangos and rumbas, and the modern waltz, his favourite. Like boxing, dancing demands deft footwork and a sense of timing. The ballroom is an arena, the dancers, the contenders, and Mick is a fierce competitor. He has retained the hunger. Dancing is a test of physical prowess. It's both pastime and contest. Old Mick is in training, attending lessons from the best teachers, refining his skills, collecting records, dancing to them as he practices in the upstairs room, studying his moves in front of full-length mirrors, taking home sashes and trophies, getting on with it. Thanks, Arnold. Do you know, as I listen to that and as I listen to you too, I realise that I've, I learnt more about the history of Mexico reading your three novels than I have in a lifetime of reading essays and history books and articles, etc. It was just there. Same with you. I, that is a moment in history. That is a man in history and it captures a feeling. And I just think your pictures are so accurate and so sharp, so I learn more from reading from you. And Patricia Highsmith, you're going to read something from The Crime Writer, aren't you? I am. Yes. Okay, I'm just going to check first that you all remember who Highsmith is, the talented Mr Ripley, Strangers on a Train, which was a Hitchcock film, Two Faces of January, and the recent film Carol. And Arnold just mentioned to me that in Australia there was a play about Highsmith, but it hasn't come to Britain yet, and I believe it's a later period in her life where she was much more embittered, alcoholic, and much more difficult. I'm writing about a period where she's very much in love. She's in England, it's 1964, and she's in love as she always was. She says she knew she was gay from the age of six, so she's in love with a married woman. She's moved to England to what she believes is a secret bolt hole hoping that her girlfriend, Samantha, will come and join her. Samantha does come and spend the night, but unfortunately, in the middle of the night, Samantha's husband, hot on his wife's trail, suspecting she's having an affair, with a man, of course, is what he assumes, comes too. So Highsmith has to act quickly, and here's what she does. It's not that I want to leave them alone together. I don't happen to relish the thought of that pipe-smoking lunk sleeping in my house. But I keep asking myself, what would I do if I was just a friend of Samantha's, a publishing friend or an author, someone neutral from an Edna O'Brien party, and her husband turned up? Isn't this what I'd do? Offer him a bed, pack them both off in the morning with tea and toast and marmalade. So I take my own coffee up the stairs to bed, clunking my head on the low beam across the ceiling on the landing at the top of the stairs, as I always do, climbing back under cooled sheets that still have the almond scent of her. Of course, I'm prized open, wide awake. There's no way sleep will come to me. I'm cocked like a shell, tuning in to hear whatever it is that's being said. I smoke two cigarettes, one after the other, listening, stubbing them out in a saucer on the bedside table switching off the bedside lamp, listening again. 
But perhaps I did sleep. Perhaps I tumbled into a sort of half dream, because now suddenly there are raised voices, and something dark is skittering across the floor, and there's something trembling all around the house, and furniture tumbling, and such a familiar terror in my throat, and ears, and heart, and chest, sweat, sweat everywhere, thumping, something thumping in the bed with me, something huge and wild that I know now is my own heartbeat. And I think maybe I'm back home in my own little bed in Granny's boarding house and listening to Mother's voice shouting, Did you hear me? Did you hear me? And then the sound of a stifled scream and something heavy plummeting to the floor. The same familiar sensations, the salty smell of my own sweat springing out all over my body, the sense of falling, of my bowels peeling away, spiralling down a well into darkness. There's the Black and Decker drill next to my bed, and I reach for it. The drill bit slips out and clatters loudly to the floor. I hold it at the drilling end, feeling the weight of the satty, satisfying, heavy metal centre. The electric cord and plug dangling beside me. I'm cre creeping to the landing, crouching low so as not to knock myself out again on the beam. And yes, there she is. Read on. <laughs> I love you. Juan Pablo, you, you say that um, you don't like the term surreal and it is applied to your writing frequently. It is, isn't it? Yes. Y yes. Uh, actually, uh, with my second novel, with Quesadillas, yeah. it happened that it is a parody of not just surrealism, but magical realism. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, it was translated into English and French and German, etc. And uh, some of the critics and, and the journalists of those countries, they missed the parody thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember reading a, a very good review on, on, on a newspaper that it was uh, a very good review, but I, I just couldn't believe what he was saying. Like, he just missed the point. You know, he was taking literally what it was a parody. He was saying a new representative of the magical realism. And for me, it was like, wow. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I don't like the term surrealism because I think that when you cannot understand something, you just say it is surrealist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the case of Mexico, I don't like either because many times even Mexicans we started to believe that our reality is surrealist when it's just disastrous you know it's like you it's like oh look look those, those pictures there's some heads them some severe heads on the streets oh very surrealistic no 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 this is not surrealistic this is horrible it's, yes. this is unacceptable yeah and this is real. not surrealism yeah yeah and uh, and it all started back in the in the 30s when André Breton went to Mexico and he said that famous quote about, oh, Mexico is the perfect surrealistic country. So everyone in France and then in the whole world, even in Mexico, started to repeat this sentence. Mexico is a surrealistic country, but it isn't. If for Mexicans specifically, it's not. It's, yes. it's our reality. Yes. Is the Mexican ambassador here? <laughs> 
And, and you know, the reason why I mentioned that is because that is the point in the crime writer where I felt that I was comfortable with the story to that point and all of a sudden it just shot off in a different direction. Um, and, and that leads me to, to um, the point that in fiction you are not hampered by fact. You can go wherever you like with it. And that to me was, that was such a taking off point. It was an extraordinary point. Well, yes, and also when you've done a few novels, you want to do new things, don't you? And, and it seems to me, this was my ninth novel, and I have been rather interested in exploring unknown stories, unknown facts. Well, Highsmith is pretty well known, and there are two giant biographies of her and a lot of material. So the thing there I was interested in was the meshing of her interior and subconscious life, her imaginative life, the life of a writer, with her actual life. Yeah. And I just wanted to play. I think it was my easiest novel it's the, to write. And I had a lot of fun. But the thing is, she thought about murder and, and murdering people every day, and she admits this. So that was my task, to immerse myself in her violent fantasies, which is not a pleasant place to be, but it's fine for a, a finite period of time. <laughs> and, I, and also, when I talk about this novel, I, you never want to give too much away, because there's a couple of twists and turns, and that, that's the pleasure, I hope. Yes, absolutely. Now, I want to ask if you will read, and Jackie, you're going to translate as we go, yeah, and, and then ask how much you are hampered by fact when it comes to creating fiction, what liberties you feel justified to take with the characters. Saya akan bacakan bagian salah satu bagian dari bab satu yang bisa uh, memperlihatkan bagaimana kekuatan karakter tokoh utama. So this is from the beginning of the of, uh, of, the, of the novel and it talks it, it sets the, the scene for the main character the character of the main protagonist. Jackie, could you translate the name of the novel for us, too, please? The name of the novel is. Um, I chose I chose the gorilla gorilla pathway. Yes, thank you. Kalau perundingan deadlock dan Jogja diserang, kenapa Bung tidak ikut mengungsi? Go ahead. Go ahead. Ndak. Bung Karno menggeleng. Kedua kaki diselonjorkan dengan kedua tangan menyilang di perut. Aku dan Bung Hatta akan tetap berada di istana sehingga ada kesempatan untuk terus berjuang dengan cara diplomasi. Aku harus tetap di sini agar bisa berunding dan memimpin rakyat. Kau memang seorang prajurit. Tempatmu di medan perang bersama-sama pasukanmu, Dimas. Tapi tempatmu bukan tempat pelarianku.
Tapi Bung boleh jadi akan dipunuh jika tetap ada di sini. Tetap di sini atau lari tak ada bedanya, Dimas. Kalaupun aku lari, tentara Belanda akan juga memburuku. Tak ada pilihan sebab sama-sama menghadapi kematian. Tidak perlu khawatir, aku tidak takut. Sedikitpun tidak takut. Sudirman kemudian berdiri, sesoknya yang memakai piyama di balut mantel tebal warna coklat itu tak terlihat ringkih sekarang. Ia berdiri tegap seperti semestinya seorang panglima berdiri. Sekarang yang akan memimpin perang itu panglima besar atau panglima tinggi, ujarnya. Bung Karno mengernyit tapi kemudian tersenyum. Kita tidak bisa apa-apa lagi, Dimas. Kondisinya sudah begini. Siap. Sudirman menghormat. Kalau Panglima tertinggi tidak bisa memimpin, mohon izin Panglima besar akan memimpin perang gerilya ini. Kau masih sakit, Dirman? Serga Bung Karno. Nada suaranya agak tinggi. Yang sakit itu Sudirman. Panglima besar tidak pernah sakit. Oleh sebab itu, Panglima besar mohon izin. Oleh sebab itu, Panglima besar mohon izin Panglima tertinggi. Jelas Sudirman. Lalu memberi hormat dan balik kanan. Tegap menyongsong peluru. Meninggalkan Bung Karno berdiri setegap karang. Thank you. This is not a prepared translation, so I apologize for any errors and mistakes. Um, what happens, this is a conversation between uh, Sukarno, uh, Hatta, and Sudirman. Sukarno is the president of this young nation fighting for independence. Hatta is the vice president, and Sudirman is the commanding general. Um, What happens, if the de uh, what happens if the negotiations are deadlocked and Jogja falls? Um, why, won't, uh, why won't you leave? Why won't you flee like the rest? No, Bunkarno uh, uh, expressed with his two feet out in front of him and his hands casually across his stomach. I, um, I and Bung Hatta, the vice president, will stay here in the palace, in the, in the presidential palace, until there's an opportunity to continue to pursue the diplomatic options. I have to stay here um, so I can take every op op opportunity to lead the people. Uh, you are a soldier, referring to Sudirman. Your place is on the battlefield together with your forces. But my place is not to run. My place is to stay here. But you could be killed if you stay here. Whether I stay here or I run, there's no difference, Dimas. Um, if I run, the, the Dutch are going to follow me to kill me anyway. There's no choice, or the choice is the same. I face death either way. Um, but you don't have to worry, I'm not afraid, I'm not a bit afraid. Um, Sudirman then stood up, the general. Um, 
He made a commanding figure in his brown uniform. And he stood tall as a commander, as a commanding general should. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot like that. <laughs> That's great. I think, look, we're, we're sort of running out of time. Now you've got an idea of what each of these writers creates, what their, what their stories are, where their fictions lie. Let's come back to the premise of the session. Can we really learn from the mistakes of the past? Can writing history actually prevent us from making the same mistakes again? Or does it just help us analyse them? Who'd like to jump in at this point? <laughs> no more avoiding the issue. Uh, look, I'll, I'll start off. I'll get Yay, the ball rolling. Arnold. Um, look, I, I, I get this question asked about human rights work. You know, yeah. um, you know people say, uh, well, there's no end to this, right? There's no end to this. Uh, and, and, and there'll never be an end to this. You know, the, we're complex. Human beings are very complex. And, uh, we, and, and the, uh, the, there's never going to be a utopia. There's never going to be that, that perfection that, that, uh, that somehow... Uh, you can make the mistake believing there will be. So every generation and you, I think, goes through the same stupidities and also some of the same struggles and, 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 the, and heroes arise and there's corruption and there are high, hierarchies and, and dif differentials between those that are, that are wealthy and those that are at the bottom. And, I mean, I was saying in a panel this morning, right, there was a panel this morning about um, uh, you know, people that are in prison and about black youth in, in Australia, Aboriginal people who are in prison, and there was an American writer, uh, Mitch, who was talking about uh, the, the way in which race has so much to do with uh, imprisonment in the United States as well. And, um, and, and, and I was saying, we never get it, you know. We never get it. We never get the fact that there are basic causes for these sorts of things, and that, um, that if you have a situation where the wealthier get wealthier and the poor get poorer, finally, fi finally something's going to snap. But we never learn the lesson, do we? The rich don't give up their wealth. They don't. The rich don't give up their wealth. They will support great causes, can become great philanthropists, right, and do, all, as, you know, do amazing things with uh, uh, whatever. But uh, so it's not that I'm, uh, that I'm pessimistic and it's not even that I'm cynical. All I say is, you've just got to choose. Each generation cho has to choose, you know, what stance they take and, and what battles they're going to fight. And, um, and I do think that history does come to our aid in that respect because we've seen there are some dangers, you know, and one of the greatest dangers is the danger of do the ends justify the means. And so there are all kinds of warning signals that can be read from history. And... and yeah, so that, that's, that's for starters. That's to get the ball rolling. I think George, George Bernard Shaw said, um, we learn from history that we learn nothing from history. And to me, that says it all, really. Yeah. Um, do you have a, an opinion on that? I think that's close to what I'm thinking yeah. here. I'm not trying not to sort of end on a negative note. I, that, to me, that's not the function of what I'm doing. Yeah. It's not to educate... 
it's something else. It's like the value of fiction for itself. What is yes. that about? What are the stories we don't otherwise hear, we don't know? And there's a bearing witness that is important, that matters, that's worth having, regardless of whether you change anything. I mean, I was just quickly thinking that one of my novels about Edie Thompson being hanged in 1921 is actually a story about slut-shaming. And you're not telling me that's not still going on. You know, she did nothing wrong. She didn't murder her husband. She was hanged because she was sexually active with a younger man. Not much has changed, uh, except that we don't have a hanging in England. But in terms of attitudes to women and sex, so actually I'm not an optimist on what fiction can do, but I never set out to do that. You know, I am not a philosopher. I'm not an academic. I want to tell stories. I want to bear witness. I want to tell the stories I want to tell. I think that's the function of fiction. Absolutely, it's all about the story. And, yeah, I'll just say, Mark Twain actually said, too, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> I love that. Uh, look, we do have roving mics, and we're happy and eager to take questions from the audience at this point, should you have them. I know. <laughs> I've changed my tune, haven't I? <laughs> Is there anyone who'd like to ask a question? Yes, we have somebody here. And there is a mic coming towards you at a rate of knots. There is a person coming towards you without a mic. There is the mic. I, w I wonder if Arnold can talk a bit more and anyone else, if they wanted to, about the, um, the drama in Australia when a certain fiction writer uh, claimed, I think, that she was writing better history or more um, accurate history than historians. And that was the, um, you referred to Inga Clendinen, who who took that on and that issue. I wonder if you'd just like to talk a bit more about that and whether any of you would also claim to be um, more historians than... Oh, that's a very difficult question. I don't want to enter into that controversy. I don't think we have enough time to tease it out and I don't like talking about things where there isn't time to tease things out. That's a but, whole festival topic. But, um, yeah. you know, I guess the, the brief answer in terms of you know, uh, it's interesting, history and, and fiction, and, and I agree with you that you know, you've got the stuff of history, and you, and you do have to know that history. You know, you, you have to, every single story I've, I've written has got an historical canvas, and, they're, they're, and, and, and it's important to know what was going on in the times. When I, when I wrote Scraps of Heaven, a novel set in 1958, Large, a largely autobiographical novel, and I went to the newspapers of the Times, and I, you know what I saw? It's interesting in terms of the topic in hand that every age has got its anxieties. You know, the anxiety of the age is terrorism. The anxiety of that time, it was in the newspapers day after day after day, was the uh, nuclear threat. You know, the fear of the bomb. You know, and people think that our age, in particular, has got is unique in its problems, unique in its in its uh, anxieties, but it repeats itself, right? But having said that, I agree with you that you then allow the imagination. You take off from that. You know, you, 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 you start to draw on all kinds of things to create your characters. Um, and, and you do have to work to create characters that are authentic. So 
I, if I'm writing characters that, for example, an entire novel of mine, Sea of Many Returns, all set in the Greek culture, to which I'm to some extent an outsider, no, I immersed myself in their stories and I immersed myself in the island and I immersed myself in the history and then out of that arose characters that I didn't know where they came from. And, 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 and I was just hoping, I was just hoping in a way. And the extraordinary thing is that the reception from Ithacans has been uh, extraordinary. So that's all you can do, is do the work and try to, try to, to create characters that are genuine. But also, th there's license, there's license to play. There's license to go in, in all kinds of directions. I'm sure that the other writers share this thing, that there are moments when you're at the writing desk and something crazy happens. And, and what I've discovered is it's those crazy things that happen that are the things that write, that readers respond to most, in a way. They, it's somehow when you're, you're brave enough to go into certain areas that seem weird, those are the ones that seem truest to the human experience. Yeah, well said, yeah. I see, I wanted to ask, when, when you took that sort of huge left turn with the crime writer, <laughs> and we won't say, yeah, did you cop flack from Highsmith experts about that? Did anyone sort of no. not see it as fiction and just go, that's not true? I, I certainly expected to. I mean, you have yeah. to read the novel to know what Jenny means. I think yeah. it is a bit of a big departure. Um, two people, many people who knew Highsmith have come up to me, and one that pleased me immensely was Phyllis Gardner, who wrote the screenplay for Carol, and she did say to me, you captured the Pat I knew so spookily, you freaked me out. <laughs> so actually that felt like a really great compliment, because I never met Highsmith. But the one that was interesting was my sister, who uh, we share Highsmith novels, she texted me, and she said, Oh my God, I'm on page 68, <laughs> or whatever it is. And you know, she, my sister, who knows all my novels, who knows my interest, who knows Highsmith's work, was not expecting it. So that pleased me. Yeah. You know, you'd sort of think that maybe people are second guessing you. And it was exactly as Arnold says, it's a sort of just one of those moments where you think, why not? Why not do this? Which fiction can do, for yes. sure. Yeah. But yeah. you did have an audience question, Jenny. Yes. <laughs> coming to you. Mike's coming. Um, I'm, I'm an historian myself, and I regard it as perfectly valid that there be a genre of historical fiction, and it's perfectly valid that, by all means, novelists go ahead and have a go, and either use what they think is the history as a springboard for their stories, or alternatively, perhaps, as, as in your case, uh, you believe that this is a better medium for getting real history across to you, to 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 your readers, but the premise of the of the session is, you know, history repeating itself. My concern is that with a lot of historical fiction, novelists are repeating bad history. That is, they are repeating the myths that either historians have built up amongst themselves over generations, or they pick it up from the historical myths that are peddled by politicians about a country's history. And either way, it actually sets your readers up for repeating, repeating history. And Juan Pablo says one of your books is about a forgotten artist. I'm writing, I am writing a biography of a forgotten artist. And the interesting thing is, why has he been forgotten in the, in the, in, in the, his, in the histories? Because if he were remembered, then what most Australians know is Australian art history 
would actually have to be rewritten because he does not fit the narrative. Uh, and my problem, of course, is that I can't make up his feelings because I don't have letters, etc. All I have are, are his pictures. That, that's a lot to go on. But, uh, but can I add to that? Because we've only got like yeah, yeah, short, so, so, short while. Sure, and go actually, for it. that's go a, for a hot on topic for me. Lots of my friends are biographers. And in England, I belong to something called the Biographer's Salon. And the way in which I suddenly began to feel that what I was doing was not so transgressive and not invalid was when I heard biographers talk about what they suppressed what they edited, what they chose to present. So I, you notice, did not say I'm an expert on history, nor am I an educator. But I do feel very confident in my art form of kind of biographical fiction because I have looked... I mean, for example, with Highsmith, I read all the existing biographies. I did the same with Rupert Brooke. There are 11 for Rupert Brooke and some letters that others didn't know about and I discovered. And he's a different man in each, according to the biographer's talents, writing ability, research, personality, values, politics. I feel legitimate because I always say, mine's a novel. I made it up. I actually don't say to you it's the truth. It's worrying if people misunderstand and don't read other things. But I'm a voracious reader. I read a lot of history. Actually, that's what my degree is in, not literature, to get to the position I'm in. So I think for novelists, it's fine unless we are claiming, I suppose, an authority that we haven't earned. That's a different position. I'm I'm affirming your genre. And what I'm saying is because most people now get history through fiction and through film rather than through works of history, it matters immensely. It matters immensely what you, what you say and, and where it comes from. And I just say with a slightly sour note, you'll notice that there's almost, there are no historians who are counted as writers who are present at this festival. But you seem to be saying something else as well, and, that, and it, it comes through in your novel and uh, the forgotten um, artist. There are a lot of forgotten people. There are a lot of forgotten people, and I know that um, I love writing about the Mick Reeds and the Peter Reeds, you know, these knockabout guys that are forgotten in history. I mean, who owns history at a particular point of time is a very interesting question. Who monopolises history? What stories are the stories of the times? And I'm constantly finding, you know, you know, so many gaps and so many untold stories that I'm compelled to tell. And I think that's the real answer to that question, is to tell the stories and to seek out those gaps. Um, and it's interesting, in my, in my latest novel, there is in the fighter, a key character is the mother of the boxers who descended into madness. She, she, she um, you know, because of what had happened to her during the war and the trauma she suffered, and uh, she descended into, into extraordinary psychic rages and madness. And um, she had five children, four are still alive. And what I, and, and they just, Individually, they did not know her story. There were so many gaps. But I had so many conversations with each one of them. And finally, I, I, I created the portrait of her. And each, each of those four remaining siblings said to me, we know our mother better now. Because I had heard so many different you know, little bits and pieces that I then could use the, uh, the, the novelist's craft the, the art of scene construction to put together and to hopefully create her point of view. So I think there are things that the novelist, 
that the fiction writer and the creative non-fiction writer can do uh, in order to bring alive things that are, are overlooked and forgotten? Yes, I, actually, I, I, I tried to write this novel for more than 20, for more than almost 12 years, failing. Why? Because uh, actually I, I wouldn't write uh, an historical novel. I just, write, I just wanted to write about this forgotten artist. And then until I realized that there was a connection between this particular forgotten artist and all the forgotten people of our recent history, and in, the, and in two particular moments, all the dead people from the big earthquake of 1985 in Mexico City, thousands of people who died, and many of them, they remained, uh, the corpses of them remained in the crashed buildings and the families couldn't bury them. And then in more recent history, in the, in the last 10 years, all these uh, dead people from the violence of the drug trafficking so until I, I didn't realize the connection between how we create the canon, the, the artistic canon, and how do we decide that this artist uh, deserves a statue, deserves the name of a street, deserves the name of a school, and, and this other, we are going to, for, to forget it, you know? And until we, we, I didn't realize that there was this, the same mechanism working for this and for the political and the social, I couldn't write this novel. And then in this novel, it's this connection between the artistic, the political, and the social. Is there anyone else who'd like to ask a question of our panel at this point? We have the microphone. Okay. Um, well, a writer said to me a couple of nights ago, actually at opening night, that the role of the historian is going to be redundant pretty soon because everything is online. And we're all on Facebook, so Facebook is our history. And we just need to go online. I mean, <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> I think it's terrible. Yes. <laughs> I mean... I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's tragic for someone to make a comment like that. I, it, it, it's, um, so, so what he's saying is um, it's all gossip. <laughs> Everything is now reduced no to... No more forgotten people. Although I think it would be interesting to construct novels from all these conversations that are taking place on social media. To me, the most fascinating thing about social media, and it's another reason why that's such a whatever comment, is that really what I've what I've seen, and many people know this, is that people choose choose the the, the gossip that they're drawn to, or they they choose the points of view that they're drawn to. So so people aren't learning anything new. All they're doing is confirming what they already know, and they keep on reinforcing whether it's the you're on the right wing blogs or the left wing blogs. People are continually reinforcing. Uh, the same uh, the same ways of looking at things, and I think that's a danger too. You know, they they you know it starts to become very narrow, very partisan, and people are so angry about those that are not in this camp. We are in the right camp, sort of thing. And these sorts of partisan kinds of um, uh, factions that are developing developing on social media. I think there's a danger there that there's a, a narrowness in in point of view, um, and um, 
that that um, I, I think um, uh, can be counted. You know, going back to what we're doing here now, counted by what is the job of the novelist is to cast an eye that goes across the classes, that goes across uh, time spans, that goes across the factions, and try to create a story that's got more texture and, and more reality. Well said. I actually think that's, that's probably a really good point to end, too. I think that's, that's fantastic. I think what we've established here today is that it's not the role of the historical fiction writer to prevent the mistakes being repeated. It's the role to tell a damn good story. And I have been blessed today with four fabulous storytellers. So please thank my panellists.